Welcome to the LarryInFishers.com podcast. I'm Larry Lannon. When Fishers Police Chief Mitch Thompson resigned as chief following an arrest for OWI, that was a little more than one year ago, Thompson's assistant chief, Ed Gebhardt, was named the acting chief on July 31st of last year. Then on August 17th of 2018, Mayor Scott Fadness named Gebhardt to become the permanent Fisher's chief of police, and the new chief Gebhardt was sworn into office September 7th, 2018. Now that Chief Gebhardt has been on the job as the permanent head of the department for about a year now, I invited him to appear on the LarryandFishers.com podcast. I spoke with Chief Gebhardt during the afternoon of Wednesday, August 7th. I'm at the Fishers Police Headquarters, the George Kale Building, and I'm with Ed Gebhardt, the Chief of Police for the City of Fishers. Uh, Chief Gebhardt, thank you very much for taking time to talk with me today. You're welcome. Look forward to it. Uh, you've been in this job for more than a year now, uh, nearly a year, as the permanent uh, chief of police. So just talk about what that's been like for you and what you've learned in that first year as chief. A lot and continuing to learn a lot about you know, our community, uh, our officers, you know, the direction that we need to go um, in trying to get ahead of the next five to seven years of what's coming our way. I don't want to play defense. I want to go play offense. When you say what's coming our way in the next five to seven years, explain what you mean by that. Well, we sit on the suburb of a metropolitan city. So it's only, if you look at any city, the city continues to grow and Fishers is no short of exploding and bringing people into the population in you know 2000 when i was hired i'm going to estimate so don't fact check on me but we were somewhere around the area of 30 to 35,000 population and we had roughly 58 officers on duty so circa 2019 we we're authorized at 119 sworn and we have uh, i think nearing 95,000 in our community with that becomes uh, crime and all the other things that you have to face as the director of the of the police department that you're appointed to make sure the direction stays in step with that community. As you mentioned, uh, you have uh, a major interstate highway going right through the city. You border a major metropolitan city of a million and a half people in the whole metro area. Um, so you, I mean, although we are a suburb and we pride ourselves in, in being a fairly safe community. Nobody's perfectly safe, but I think uh, you and the rest of the city works very hard at that. So what are the special challenges? For instance, do you have special challenges, let's say, along 96th Street or along the interstate you don't have in other parts of the city? We're so fortunate because we have such good community backing and we have a great city council and we have an aggressive mayor that allows us to stay ahead of it. A lot of cities don't get that kind of synergy rolling. So what I mean by that is, you know, being tasked with making sure the community stays safe is one thing. So you have your neighborhoods, you have your houses, you have visibility, you need, you need to make sure the cars are seen, the guys get in the neighborhoods. 
but on top of that, you have calls for service coming in. So last year we ran uh, just shy of uh, 59,000 calls for service. So that's a lot of dispatch runs over the course of the year. So we're getting called, and then we also got to stay proactive, and then we also got to be seen. So you have to balance that. And the only way you can balance that is if you have a staff that wants to stay aggressive and be and take initiatives that will cater to your needs. So one of the things that was built a long time ago, in fact, it was built by one of the officers of the agency, is we built a crime reduction unit. And that crime reduction unit is largely charged with the ability to task out on 96th Street, our hotels, and our interstate. That is a unit that's built to stay ahead of the crime curve. Also, our traffic unit. Um, that unit also is your proactive enforcement arm. I think it's sometimes funny when they say they know my traffic officers, but what they don't understand is, is in proactivity becomes prevention. So if they're out making traffic stops on people and someone's coming up that has uh, bad intentions, they see those lights, they see those cars, and they'll move on to another jurisdiction or they'll turn around and go back to their other jurisdiction. So if you can build units that stay specific to areas of need on top of being proactive, on top of staying in your neighborhoods, and on top of your schools, 22,000 kids, you have to balance all of that. And the only way you can do that is if you have synergy at the city. It's a city effort. It's not a police department effort. We have to come up with ideas in order to combat how we grow and how we move. It, the city has to back us. And really, in turn, the community has to back us. So it's just one big wheel. And that's why our vision is our city, our cops, our kids, because our kids are our future. Our cities, our community, and our cops are tasked with making sure it stays safe. So it all takes care of each other. Make sense? I think uh, just about every police chief I've ever spoken with has always said, we do our part, but uh, we have to partner with the community because a lot of these issues that the police deal with are community issues. You cannot necessarily solve. You're reacting to them or you're trying to prevent them. So, yeah, that's right in line with what I've heard from other people who work in law enforcement. And the balance there is how. So if you're a good CEO of any company, how do you balance whether you're doing a good job or not job? So how do you state your strategic plan for your people? The only way that we do it here, well, there's not the only, there's several ways because people want to communicate differently in all sorts of ways. But every spring we start with a community survey of how we're doing. And that survey comes back and tells us, are we seeing you? Do, you, do we see you in our neighborhoods? Do we see you in our business districts? Are you... Um, I don't mind seeing that um, Sergeant Pickett has made a few people angry because it tells me he's out doing his job, which is what he's paid to do. Remember, proactivity is prevention. So that survey will tell me where we need to shape and shift our people. And a good example of that, in 2011, moving into 2012, we did a community survey, and it said it had over, it had about 51 remarks of we don't see you in our neighborhood. Now, that's a, that's, that you would think that's a low number, but I think it's too high. If I have 51 people that don't think they see my cars, that's a problem. We set some initiatives. We got our team together. We set up a program, and we, did, we, we called it the impact car at the time. And we still run the impact car on holidays and different reasons. The impact car brought that 51 down to 12 in 2012. That's responding to the survey. That's responding to our citizens saying, hey, we need to see you over here. And I hear the same thing you just brought up in the prior question is, is we're seeing more crime in our business district. Mm -hmm. Well, we had to sit down at the table. We had to take all the ideas, and we built the crime reduction team. And now in our survey, we don't necessarily see those. 
So we use that as one prong of figuring out where we need to work with the community. I want to move to another subject because it's something that's had nationwide attention and you've been dealing with it uh, for a while now, and that's uh, the body cams. That's sure. where the police officer has a video piece of equipment on his or her equipment uh, on their uniform and uh, generally records interactions with, with the public. I went to a meeting that you had recently where you brought in the private contractor that will be providing that service for you, and a lot of questions were answered there. I think that was a very... Uh, revealing uh, session and a lot of questions were answered by myself or that were posed by myself and others so what i'd like to do is just explain to the community where you are in terms of of installing and using these body cams and the video that's produced sure so you know the, the one prevailing question that came during the implementation or during the implementation of that training was is can you guarantee failure can you guarantee technical failure and i cannot um so I think one of the catastrophic things we can do is move too fast. Um, so the goal has always been is to use 2019, the full year, to implement, hopefully be 100% into 2020. The reason for that is is right now we're just testing equipment and make sure we put on officers and it's the right thing to do. This costs the taxpayers money. We must make sure that we use it correctly and we understand it. We did that board so we can bring the community into our house so we can understand how they feel about the body cams themselves. So again, we're just taking another process and using our community to do it the right way. The last thing I wanna do is throw a bunch of cameras on a bunch of guys and I have failure in the field. So we have to do it slow, we have to make sure it's right, we have to work with the vendor, we gotta work with the city because we have the garage working on the car. So there's a lot of moving pieces here and I'm not in a hurry. When we deploy, I wanna make sure we deploy correctly. And even then I can't guarantee that something's gonna fail at a switch or a wire or human error, I can't guarantee that. But I can guarantee that leadership wise, we'll try to make sure that our guys have it on when they need to have on and policy will also push that as well. Well, having worked uh, in, in the radio broadcasting business, I can assure you there's never a guarantee electronics will work 100% of the time, but you want to set it up in a way where it's, uh, will, will work most of the time and, and fix the, the glitches as they come along. As the leader of the department, as you implement this, uh, how the officers react to this body cam situation? Well, they're, you know, it's you put a camera on you for 24 hours and film everything you do and tell me how you feel. Um, a majority of the officers are ready. Um, not all officers are thrilled at a body camera being put on them. But over time, the in-car cameras that we implemented back in 2012 era, circa 2012, had the same sort of feeling in the air. We had officers that wanted them, and we had officers that didn't want them. And I think it's a leadership-led endeavor of how we're going to use the body cameras to help them do their jobs, not hinder them. For me, we use the in-car cameras to make us better. We use the in-car cameras to help clear officers for false allegations. And then sometimes we use the cameras to identify the truth of maybe something that wasn't right. And we dealt with that internally, but we did it professionally with our officers. So my officers generally don't fear their in-car in -car videos now, and they're used to them. Mm -hmm. I think we can do the same thing with the body cams through good implementation, through sound leadership, through good trust in the organization. I know that the body cams are going to be a positive for the officers. Otherwise, I wouldn't want to do the endeavor. 
Switching to another subject, uh, your department does have a relationship with the Indianapolis Metropolitan Police Department, and it's about guns. So explain that relationship and how you use that relationship uh, as a crime prevention uh, program. So it's a resource allocation that the mayor and I sat down, and we wanted to make sure that um, we were using our tax dollars to the best advantage by having our resources allocated in the correct locations. And I'm speaking directly to specialty units where our officers are placed, whether it's the Joint Terrorism Task Force, whether it's at Safe Streets. We have officers in placement positions that help the broader picture of regional leadership and law enforcement. Um, One of the things that I wanted to be clear on is what is going on down there because we border Indianapolis. I think they're fantastic partners to get to know. I wanted to build the relationships. And more importantly, I wanted to know what they saw prior to the issues of violent crime that they're having to wonder if I can identify it and learn from it so I can protect our community better. I learned so much um, from sitting down with um, Deputy Chief Barker down there and also Chief Roach in terms of things they were doing to help to reduce violent crime in the metropolitan area. And it was clear to me, um, taking inventory after those meetings, that not only were, were fishers susceptible to those crimes, that we had people participating in those crimes within our community already. Our crime reduction team, which we spoke about earlier, and largely our shifts were coming in contact with people that were from there that were carrying handguns. We just needed to make sure we got on page with how they were processing their guns. And I refer to these as crime guns. Not, we're not talking constitutional carry. We have to be careful there. I'm not going after someone who's got a weapon and they own it um, and they've bought it and they're licensed and they are responsible. I'm not interested in that. I'm interested in a nexus to crime. Um, What they do down there is they process every weapon as it's a crime scene. So these weapons are ran through um, a system called NIBIN and they're also ran through DNA check. So if an officer is on a contact on the side of the road, if a criminal nexus is afoot, if we see something that leads us to believe that a crime is afoot or they've been involved in a crime, we'll look deeper. And if we come up with a handgun, then we'll process those weapons like they're crime scenes. That's different. They didn't do it a couple of years ago, and we didn't. And now they are, and now we are. So we got smart by using their resources. They taught us what they were doing. We mirrored it and we started having successes here in Fishers. Let me make sure I understand one thing, because from a technical point of view, you mentioned DNA. I can understand tracing you know, the serial numbers and tracing the caliber and so forth of a, of a, of a particular firearm, but are you able to actually get DNA off of a firearm just if it's been used and somebody's put their finger on the trigger, you can get DNA off that, and if you have a match, you can match that up with someone else? Yes, and we've had four. Is that so? So we held, uh, we started this initiative as a strategical goal under the umbrella. So we have about 10 strategical goals of the Fishers Police Department that we want to meet. This is one of them. And this is to help with the regional overall violent crime problem. Instead of sitting around hoping that they just deal with it, I went down and said, we want to get involved, we want to help. Um, And uh, the major departments in Hamilton County are all helping as well. So we held a training in February where over 100 officers were in-house. We brought in state, local, and federal prosecutors. We brought in the ATF. We brought in um, some professionals from Indianapolis, and we held a training. We educated Hamilton County on 
how to process these weapons appropriately and how to outfit our officers so they could win in the field. And what we have is, since February is we've brought in 56 crime-related guns. Of those, 18 have come back on 18 Nibin hits to violent crime within the Indianapolis area. Four of those are DNA hits. Statistics you can't argue with. Hmm. Carmel That's amazing. Police, Carmel Police Department's had five, to hmm. my knowledge. So these guns are around. And what Indianapolis did and what they're doing is is they're approaching their, and by the way, um, they're always in favor if I say their violent crime has been reduced. They're reducing their crime down there. So I don't want to preach this as they can't handle their business. They can. Um, I just want to help in any way I can because I'm kind of a chief without borders. If there's crime there, it's going to be here. And if there's crime here, they're going to help me by coming here. And I've seen that partnership work. So in moving this process forward, the 18 hits now are handed back to them to close violent crime cases that are open down there or need to be further looked into. And there's some success there. Um, I can't speak to it with you because they're cases, but um, what I'm seeing is, and you, I say success, well, it's not a success if you come across a crime gun that's been involved in a violent crime, but it's a failure if we don't identify it and deal with it. And we're just trying to deal with it. And it goes back to that first comment I made when you sat down is, I don't want to be a defensive chief for the community of Fishers. I, want to, I think the best defense is a greater offense. I think that's an interesting point. Talk about this for a moment because uh, IMPD certainly has something in this as well because if they're dealing with a criminal element there and those people think they can cross 96th Street and, and get away with it, that's not good news for them. So this is where the people go back and forth across that shared border we have. So I think what I'm hearing you say is that that's why this is a program that Indianapolis and Fishers and other uh, communities bordering Indianapolis are are trying to get involved with. And what I'm hearing you say is it's meeting with success, not in the sense that there's a crime, that's never a success, but at least being able to solve that crime and hold people accountable for it. We have to start somewhere. Might as well be at the gun. So 325,000 people, roughly, statistically, I'm on, you know, don't, I think we're like right at 325 for Hamilton County. I'm not sure. Um, that's the last number I saw. Censuses are tough to, but I'm not interested in just the 95,000 in, in Fishers. I'm interested in the 325,000 in Hamilton, and then I'm interested in the entire state. I think to truly be effective, all leaders need to get on board, and we all need to process weapons the same way. And we all need to help out because we're all suffering from the consequences of it. I want to switch uh, subjects here because the first time I had you on a podcast, I had you and Ari Rahem today on. And, sure. and you were there to talk about uh, the Crime Watch app that you had just rolled out at that time. And it, it, uh, I want you to comment on how that has worked out, how other agencies have gotten on board with this idea. And, and I'll, I'll follow up a little more with technology because I know this has become a bigger part of your job than it was many years ago. But let's start off with the Crime Watch app. Tell me about how that's worked out for you now. You've had some time with it. Yeah, so we're a few years in. Um, actually, it's being rolled out, um, relaunched by um, a company called Relay, who's come in and kind of uh, um, reworked it and, um, have di- and they're, they're integrating it with our CAD system and they're making it a stronger base. What's it. the CAD system so people That's know? That's the in-car uh, computer okay, basically good. that runs the system that basically um, tells an officer what he needs to be doing. Very good. Um, it kind of runs our world, so to speak. Um, so integration with it, and then uh, we're going to unroll it starting next week. So 
Crime Watch will kind of go away, and it'll be called it'll be called Relay as of next week. And then the City of Fishers is is going to help to facilitate that. We have a meeting tomorrow, and then moving into next week. So that's going to get interesting. It's not not everybody wants to talk to people. So if you're a leader in a community, you have to figure out the percentages of how people want to talk to you. So it's not that 100% of people are going to want to use the Crime Watch. That's not what I'm after. I'm after the 30% that wouldn't have called me because they're not going to call someone and they'll use the app. Then 30% may call dispatch directly and 30% may flag an officer down. Then I'm in my 90 percentile. We have to open ourselves up as CEOs to the different communication paths. And right now, the generations that are coming on board, they don't want, they don't, they're not into one-to-one conversation. They want to text. They want to shoot a picture. They want to work it that way. And I think police departments need to understand that, and that's where our generations are going. I always say this because I think it's funny. Um, my daughter broke up with her last boyfriend over text. <laughs> that's, where, that's where we're headed. I've, I've heard that story more than once. <laughs> yeah, that's where we are headed. <laughs> so I, I think that in, in Crime Watch, maybe it's not the way. You know, maybe it's up to CEOs or chiefs or mayors to figure out another way, and I'm sure people will. Um, but the goal is always to keep trying to change your communication style so you can fit the need for your entire community. I, I believe that Fishers is a very tech-savvy community, and I think it fits here, so it works here. Um, and I'm anxious to see as we unroll this how it looks and how it's used. Well, the Crime Watch started the whole thing locally, and so now you're moving forward with the yes. technology. And mm-hmm. I, I want to. that leads me to the next question because I, I read some amazing things in the national media, and I want your take on it because I've seen, you know, the fact that there are now such sophisticated algorithms that many police departments are using it not to predict a specific crime will happen in a specific place, but where crime is likely to happen next or maybe in a specific area or neighborhood and actually put more resources there to try to prevent a crime which is likely to happen based on the predictive technology. What do you know about that or what do you think that that's come very far to where it would have some use for your department? I've grown in this area. I've matured in this area. Um, I'm, I'm from a different generation of you had a street sarge tell you where to go be and then you go be. Um, but you can't ignore these sophisticated tools that are coming out to help you be uh, better. And so you can draw heat maps based upon what areas in your population are going to be most populated. You can draw heat maps from how many times you've been hit, how many, and I say hit, sorry, it's slang, but how many times you've had a car, sure, had a theft from a vehicle or something taken or a house burglarized, and those are statistics you can enter into a heat map that'll tell you that this is where you need to be. So analytics is important. I have three um, I have three intel analysts upstairs, civilian analysts, that are working analytics all the time, crunching numbers and dots. I've come a long way from my sergeant tells me to go and I go. Now we still have that because just like the story before, all officers need different ways of communication. So for me, it's for the leaders to interpret um, all these different tools and resources like our analysts upstairs and our detectives and use those resources and then apply our patrols appropriately and make sure we're where we need to be when we need to be there. 
just to switch again, there was a drowning in recent days just before we record this at Geist Reservoir. A man basically fell off a dock into a lake. And I've got to give credit to you and the fire departments. You have your own crews at work together when this happens. As I understand the the data, uh, you were on the scene, you and fire were on the scene within four minutes after the call and had the man out of the water in three minutes, which is just amazing. Unfortunately, he didn't make it, but it wasn't because of any lack of response uh, by the uh, by the workers, the, the first responders. Uh, explain the importance of this police and fire cooperation when it comes to dive teams, that sort of thing. Well, it's good to have good banter with your fire department it's good to be social but we do a lot of things with our fire department because we understand the dynamics of and i think you're going to move to a topic of the shootings that are happening we have to be ready for things that are greater than ourselves so we got to check our egos at the door and 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 i think where we've done that is our dive our cooperative dive teams um lieutenant mike james um, was in the water and pulled him within three minutes. There's a lot of great things that go on in our industry that we don't talk about or we move on from. The bad part about that is, is he didn't make it. Um, but again, if you don't have good synergy at your city level, if you don't have a supportive mayor and council that equip you appropriately, then Mike's never in the water um, that quick to make that save. And um, he's you know, he's our best diver. And he got in there and he got equipped and he got and he did it safely. So I have three realms that liabilities through the ceiling and dive is one of them. And so cohesively working with them to be safe is very important to myself and the fire chief. The others our SWAT team, our emergency response team, and then our canines also. These these endeavors are dangerous. Um, and we have really good professionals that lead them and Lieutenant James leads our dive team and our dive team efforts. And we have the equipment in the cars for them to rescue people because we've had losses where kids have moved into the retention ponds. So all the tax money possible, if we just save one life with them, then I think it's a feasible tool. And um, being ready, because we have Geist Lake in our area, we have to be ready for those saves. And our teams are are collaborating and ready for those saves. You mentioned this, and and I do want to ask you just for a moment here about shootings, uh, mass shootings, because we've had two in one weekend right before we record this, and that always seems to spark a discussion until the next one dies down, until the next one happens. But uh, I just want to ask about the fact that we're fortunate here. Nothing like that's ever happened in, in Fishers. But on the other hand, I guess any police department of any size, really any police department today, needs to be prepared. So how do you drill? How do you practice? How do you um, try to make sure your officers are prepared in the unlikely event something like that were to happen in Fishers? Well, you know, operational readiness um, is is um, needs to be at the forefront of our law enforcement and fire leadership industry. Um, I think that it needs to remain what you see as important as a leader than the guys will see it as important down below you, the guys and gals that have to actually answer the call. Um, we have great people doing great things all the time. And this is another area where, um, you know, Captain Ellison has leads the charge and we have a high threat response uh, plan in place. And we work with the fire department and we have a high threat response team that's comprised of uh, police and fire 
that's out actually coaching other agencies on getting ready for high threat response. Um, they'll help you get ready for city events so you're ready at all times. And uh, what that's done is is has led to trainings in the past where last year we had a multi-county active shooter training right here in Fishers where we did it in a school with teachers, with uh, with volunteers, with everybody, and fire were there, and we were there, and Carmel was there, and Noblesville was there, county was there, and we were all there because on the day it happens, just like in Noblesville, we're all going to be there. You were there in Noblesville. That's what was a local fire. So I, I saw the cars. Yeah. So you make it. Um, we sent 45 of our guys to Noblesville that oh. day. Um, so you make it important. You, As a leader, you set the tone for that. They have to be equipped. They have to be ready. And they have to understand and you have to train them to be successful. And, and that's the question you ask yourself day in and day out. Are we ready and where do we drill down? Because high threat response is one item. Dive is another. Emergency response team is another. Canine's another. You have all those endeavors. Well, at all the top of all those spears is a leader somewhere making sure it gets done. And at the top of our high threat response, that's, you know, there's, there's three individuals, Sergeant Wilcox, um, Captain uh, Lieutenant Lee from the fire department and Captain Ellison all make sure that our agency is ready. And you mentioned leadership several times in that response to my question. And, and any chief of police anywhere has to be a leader. And I'm curious now, especially since you've been in this job for a year or so, first of all, how you have come to understand and deal with your leadership position and, and, and in conjunction with that, how you go about choosing the leaders under you, uh, how, how, what kind of qualities you're looking for for people who will be leaders within the various parts of your department? Um, it, starts, it starts for me with a basic question, is what do you care about most? And if they answer their people, then there's one step closer to being successful with me. Um, so our atmosphere here is I want our officers, I want our leaders to um, make sure that our people have the equipment that they need, the training that they need, and the support that they need to do a good job. And that's why our cops are in that vision that I talked about earlier, because it's important that they stay healthy. It's important that we look after them. It's important that the city looks after them, and they do. Um, so in, in there's the age-old discussion is, are you a leader or are you a manager? You know, which one are you? And I prefer, and I probably am in the realm of the people, so I'm on the leadership side of that spectrum. I don't know if that's what my people see me as, because at these levels you don't go around asking, but I, that's how I see myself in this organization. And I think the guys underneath me need to have a global view of what the city's wanting to do and a global view of where their officers are in, in, in making those goals achievable. And the staff we've picked out over the last year has done a phenomenal job and we've had a multitude of hurdles in my first year that have been handled with a very young command team at the helm, and I'm proud of all of them. We're about out of time here. Anything that uh, you would like to add yourself that I haven't thought to ask about before we uh, before we wrap this up? No, my last um, here lately is just um, responsible gun ownership. So um, if you're going to purchase a handgun, I, I'm... Um, I advocate for weapons. I grew up in a family of weapons, but um, the firm hand of my dad kept me straight, and we locked them up, and we kept them in gun cabinets, and we and we did what we're supposed to do. Um, I just would ask my community to please, you know, keep 
keep their weapons out of their vehicles, take them in their houses, lock them up, and let's let's keep our community safe. Ed Gephardt, Chief of Police for the City of Fishers, thank you so much for giving me some of your time. No problem. Thank you. My thanks to Police Chief Ed Gebhardt for taking the time out of his busy schedule and talk to me on the podcast. This podcast is brought to you by LarryInFishers.com. My website is aimed at fishers and news in and around fishers. If you want regularly updated news about fishers, go to LarryInFishers.com. And you can follow my Twitter account at LarryInFishers. My name is Larry Lannon. Thanks for listening. We'll talk again.